This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature and featuring audio versions of many of the New York Times bestsellers. For listeners of this podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com sword. That's audiblepodcast.com sword. And by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use offer code SWORD12. Sword and Laser podcast episode number uh oh 155. Tom, I think it's 155. It is. That's in fact, what the doc says that I'm looking at. 155. I'm Veronica Belmont. And I'm Tom Merritt. How's it going? Good. And this is one of our very special interview podcasts. And today we are joined by author Sam Sykes. Sam, Sam. thank you so much for being here. That's my pleasure. Sam is the author of the Eons Gate trilogy, a uh, as as it says on his site, a vast and sprawling story of adventure, demons, madness, and carnage. I like the sound of that. Uh, at 25, you are one of the younger authors to have arrived on the stage of literary fantasy, and yet one I, of the most powerful. I I should clarify, I'm not actually 25 anymore. I had been hoping that people would just assume I was immortal. But Wait, you aged? You I aged. Did, I did age. I'll understand if you want to kick me off now. But Breaking uh, news, folks, right here on Sword Yeah, I, I haven't updated that for a while. I did get published when I was 25, but I'm currently 29 now and no longer special. Oh, you're still a baby. Oh, that's <laughs> She likes to be able to say that. Well, good. I am noticing I'm looking a lot pinker than either of you on my uh, screen here, but that might just be my lighting. It is probably your lighting. And uh, also, you, yeah. you glow from within. It's like a, like a peach glow. Now, you told me before the show not to make that joke. Me? I said yes. that? You're right. I did tell you not to make that joke. <laughs> I'm a joke stealer. Not only did I put down thief. your joke, I then stole your joke. <laughs> wow. What a... I'm a terrible person. I almost used the D word on myself, and then I remember that sometimes uh, children listen to this show. Oh, yeah, by the way, Sam, sometimes children listen to this show. Well, they are going to learn all sorts of new words today. <laughs> it's so, a vocabulary fest. So, Sam, tell, tell us about the Aeon's Gate series. Uh, the Aeon's Gate series is my take on the concept of adventurers. And, uh, you know, that's always been a favorite uh, point of... That's, you know, a favorite fantasy trope of mine, people who go out and do awful things. And uh, I grew up reading, you know, Drizdord and Forgotten Realms, Dragonlance, and to me it seemed uh, that ad adventurers tended to be celebrated, but what I took from it were was that adventurers were really awful people who go out and break into people's houses and beat the crap out of them and take their stuff. So I wrote 
with that frame in mind, and I write about a band of six degenerates who are sort of trying to make ends meet doing what I view as, like, the lowest of low work, and that is, you know, killing things that no one else wants to kill and going into dark places because they really have no choice. It's economics. Mm-hmm. It's the only and, one they can get, huh? Yeah, it's a... And, you know, as, a, as they go on, their uh, adventure becomes more and more involved, and eventually they sort of inadvertently save the world. And, I, you know, I, I still like the hero trope. I just think it should be a choice rather than just taken as given. Would you call them accidental heroes in that case? Uh, yeah, I mean, they, they do it pretty intentionally in that uh, saving themselves will also save the world there, kind of. But they sort of learn more about whether, you know, that it is an actual good thing to help other people on occasion. It's a learning experience. When, when you said, would uh, Tom, when you said, would you call them accidental heroes, I thought you said, would you call Max a dental hero? <laughs> and I was like, oh, he's got a character named Max. No, that's wait, a separate question. Like, would you a- call Max a dental hero? Yeah, that is my uh, next series, Max the Dental Hero. <laughs> travels Breaking from so much village news here. Village, helping out people with their uh, hygiene problems. I can't wait. Okay. Typically in epic fantasy, probably a, a bigger problem than people would initially think. Yeah. Dental I, situations. Everyone likes, uh, everyone likes uh, realism in, <laughs> in their fantasy, but I, I have not yet seen a need to go into the state of people's teeth just yeah. yet. But, <laughs> dental heroes are down there. You know, maybe someday the dental hero with his <laughs> sidekicks, regular bathing and fiber intake. <laughs> that gives a whole new meaning yeah. to epic fantasy. Yeah. yeah. What, 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 just to bring it back a little closer to the, to the trail, um, what drew you to epic fantasy, to writing this, this kind of story? Uh... Well, like I said, I grew up with a lot of epic fantasy, uh, and, you know, as I read, I think everyone, uh, a lot of authors I talked to, their initial uh, attempt to start writing was inspired by reading something and then figuring they could do it better, and that was really the case with me. I thought I wanted to put my own spin on this. I wanted to see what, uh, what my heroes and adventurers would look like. And as it turns out, they all wound up pretty awful and broken and mentally, cha- not challenged, but, you know, mental, mentally and emotionally damaged. And uh, I think, you know, I just, I just sort of took it from there. Gotcha. And now, your mom is also a successful writer. Um, how, was, how was that growing up? Did that help or hinder you kind of become the author you are today? Uh, it... It helped at first. You know, I did have someone who could actually look at my, my uh, work and say, uh, tell me what I was doing right and what I was doing wrong and so forth. Uh, she doesn't do that now. But uh, it, it... Is that because it, you don't want her to or because she's like, I'm too busy? I don't have well, we're, we're both too busy and, you know, yeah. I, I don't need it anymore. I have published uh, three books, and I have another trilogy on the way on my own Steam, so I kind of don't need that validation. But uh, now that I am published, it, it's it's kind of difficult, uh, because everyone says don't compare yourself to other authors, and that's sage advice, but we all do it anyways. 
and my closest frame of reference is someone who is a number one mega bestseller. And ever since I got published, she became a lot more free about gloating about that. <laughs> like, a little bit competitive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I when I first got published, I said, "Oh, mom, I got published," and she'd go, "Oh, that's great." And then, as time went on, I'd be like, "Hey, look, I got a good review." And then she'd go, "Oh, yeah, I got a good review." <laughs> the New York Times. <laughs> then she went snap. Yeah. Then she flipped the table and. <laughs> And you're like, Mom, I'm not done eating. Go flip the table. Yeah. Uh, this is a mess, but now I have to clean it up. <laughs> <laughs> so for those who don't know, what, what kind of books does she write? Uh, historical fiction, out the Outlander series. Uh, I haven't actually Wait read a it. second. Wait a second. Wait a second. Yeah. Your mom is Diana Gabaldon? Yeah. Holy crap. Yeah, yeah awesome. I didn't tell Veronica that on purpose. Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm I'm actually blushing right now. I really love the Outlander series. We totally read it for Vaginal Fantasy, and it was amazing. So congratulations to her on on the show, the upcoming show, and everything. That's fantastic. But this is an interview about you, not your so mother. Sam, what so we'll video game are you that playing right now? And please stop playing it and answer the question. <laughs> I know you. I know you're a video game player. Are you playing anything in particular? Uh, I am forever trying to shake Warcraft. Ah. But uh, sometimes it goes well and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, I recently found my 360, so I'm trying to go through The Witcher 2 because I do want to play The Witcher 3, but I have that problem where I can't play something new unless I beat the sequels or the prequels, I guess, in this case. Right. Uh, Polish translation is very strange. It's... It's it's a it's a weird game full of like it has this vaguely misogynist undertone and there's weird crap going on. But honestly, it's nice just to go out and kill monsters again. I haven't heard of that one. That sounds interesting and kind of weird. Uh, it's hard to explain, but basically, yeah, it is about a lanky albino who goes out and has sex and then kills monsters. Hmm. So. Um. So Warcraft, uh, Tom and I have both played in the past, uh, though I, do, I don't believe we're... Tom, you're not an active player anymore, right? I, I still am. Barely. Oh, you still are? Okay. Yeah. So the important I've, I've, I'm 90. I'm 90 now. Well, good for you. Uh, the important you know, question the then, Sam, shame is... in his voice there. Yeah, a little bit of shame. A little bit of shame. There always is, I feel you. Yeah. Probably not as much shame for me to say that I'm not 90, that I'm still 85. But anyway, um, what is, uh, what's your allegiance? Are you Horde or Alliance? Uh, I'm gonna earn a lot of enemies by saying I play pretty much Alliance now, just because I kind of view the Horde as more childish. Hmm. Ooh. You know, uh, yeah, and I have reasons. Strong words. I have, I have reasons. I used to be a huge Orc fanboy. And then the more I saw it, I, the more I realized that, of course, I'm an Orc fanboy. This is... A, uh, a faction that was tailor-made for me when I was 19, 18, all the way back to 14. It's a, it's a race that celebrates death and destruction, but is simultaneously a victim, being hated by, you know, the pretty people. Misunderstood, Misunderstood. outcast, all that. So you can go out and you can stab someone, right. but then that someone has to feel bad for making you stab them. It's a little messed up, so <laughs> I avoid it now. <laughs> What are you Fair playing enough. on the light side, then? Uh, I'm a night elf rogue. 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow, that was a Wait, are we gonna are we gonna throw down? This, this interview's oh. over. <laughs> Done. And no, I realized a long time ago that you can't have a conversation about Warcraft and not be upset in some way about people's personal choices. And so I, it is it is pretty silly. It I, I was at BlizzCon this year and I feared for my life. Why because you were you were a night elf? Well, I wasn't. Did you like up. wear a Did you wear a shirt that said like Night Elf? Oh God, no. Paladin. No, Night Elf Paladin. Look at you. <laughs> That's why. Are you not a rogue? Okay. Rogue, All right. Yeah. No. Uh, I I did not display my allegiance. I was accosted several times by drunk nerds demanding <laughs> to know my allegiance. Gotcha. I, thought, well, I apologize is, for that. Yeah. This is where I die. <laughs> in an elevator by Sorry, we didn't we didn't mean to totally out you. Um, but we do have we do have a bunch of questions from our audience, actually a ton of questions. And the first one comes from Brian. Um, he wants to know, oh, and by the way, people who are viewing live, um, we have the QA option set up. So if you have any questions that you want to ask Sam uh, during the show here, you can do so. Just plug those in and we will get to those shortly. Oi um, and yo are not questions, by the way. Oh, so. is it, are those the first two comments? Those are the first two. Not, not questions. Uh, the first one comes from Brian over on Goodreads. He says, hey, Sam, do you think that social media interaction is an important part of your job as an author? Uh, what are some things you do or do not like about having an online presence? Uh, my rule of social media has always been uh, if it's not fun, I don't do it because I feel that seeps through. And if you're not having a good time on a social media presence, it's easy to pick up on and no one's going to want to be around. Mm. because you're grumpy and angry about it. To that end, I'm not on Goodreads. It seems it so vast and deep to get into. Uh, but I am on Twitter, and my social media philosophy on Twitter has always been say whatever comes into your head and deal with the consequences later. <laughs> so, it's a good way to live, trust me. Yeah. Well, my, my Twitter feed is just full of horror. <laughs> I think I've threatened like four people today, which is good for me. That's low or good high? I mean, I'm, I'm controlling myself. Okay, if it was, good, if it was good, too good. low... So what do, what do you get into it with people about? Uh, you know, I, it, it's, it's weird. The more I seek conflict, the, the more people avoid it hmm. with me. You know, it, uh, this is sort of a, the phenomenon of the internet. The more outgoing and boisterous you are, the less people will sort of act on that. But the more meek and polite you are, the more they will attack you. I totally disagree with that. That is not that has not been my my experience. I find that the more kind of you know, the, the more inflammatory I am, the the more intense things I say, I think it gives people license to kind of speak that way back to me. It's like, you know, giving as good as you get. Mm. Um, so, or getting it as good as you're giving it, you know, from my perspective. Um, but so that's interesting that, you, that you've had the, the kind of opposite experience. I, I should uh, clarify that people might think I'm insane because my threats don't really make a lot of sense. I told Mike Cole I would punch him right in the aptitude, mm. and I don't even know what that means. You know, but having interviewed Mike recently on this show, I kind of have a sense of what you meant, because he's yeah. got aptitude. He's I don't know where aptitude. you would punch it, but yeah. I would yeah. probably not take the chance of punching Mike Cole anywhere. Oh, I'd never want to punch Mike anywhere, personally, but yeah. He looks but like he, he could take 
take us all at the same time. He maybe like he, he's got <laughs> he's got his berserker mode and he he'll flip it. But at several cons, he has in fact leapt into my arms. Ah, like just a big big cuddly drunken baby. Yeah, you guys seem to have like you and 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 Peter Brett and uh, and Mike seem to have a pretty good little friendship going on here. How how long have you guys all known each other? Uh, only like maybe uh what well, yeah about four years since I've been published. Uh, I met Peter at just in New York and while I was visiting, and I met Mike at a con, and we we got along very well. They both get my humor. Neither of them is particularly threatened by me. Like, if I if I told Peter I would punch him in the aptitude, he would know precisely what I meant. <laughs> and he would have a defense. It's nice to have friends that get you. Yeah, yeah no, sure. and we all, we all seem to get along pretty well, so. Well, we always get questions about the writing method for every author, and Stephanie's got our, our question like that this time. Uh, Stephanie wants to know, do you plan a lot in advance? Are you more of a discovery writer? Is there a part that's easy? Is there a part that's more difficult? You know, oh, what kind of a writer are you? It, it's all difficult. I mean, if it's hard, you're not... If it's hard, you're doing it right. Has always been my experience. Mm. Uh, it's less a matter of chiseling a block of stone and more about smashing your head against that block of stone until it looks like David. Uh, as for whether I plan things, uh, you know, George Martin poses this, are you, do you plant an idea and let it grow or do you create an architecture, like a blueprint to follow? And I've always wanted to be a blueprint kind of guy that really appeals to me to have everything uh, just mapped out, but I have, I'm, I'm very, ter I'm terrible at it. So, like about halfway through the blueprint, things have gone terribly awry. The house I was building is in shambles. There's weasels in the front yard. Uh, mm -hmm. I've somehow bricked up my grandma in her room. This oh, sounds like the best game of The Sims ever. <laughs> by the way, this is like if The Sims could be inspiration for a writing process. Like that's exactly yeah, how I yeah. picture it. But uh, you know, I do a lot of. I basically sit quietly and think about something for a long time, and then I go at it with an idea of where I want to get, but no real idea of how I'm going to get there. Mm -hmm. So I, I sort of blend the two. That's interesting, because I feel like with a standalone book, that might be a little bit easier to do or make more sense, but then when, when you start getting into the realm of trilogies, I feel like suddenly, how do you, how do you kind of control that, that monster, that beast of, of ideas and planning and writing and, and just, you know, power through to the very end? Uh, well, a good thing to remember is that anything that you come up with, you never throw anything away in writing. Anything you come up with that you can't use, you can use again later. So a lot of it is just an, uh, an exercise in self-control. You know, if something is really cool, and but it doesn't quite fit, then I can take it out and use it for another story, another book later, and no one has to know. <laughs> Nothing goes to waste. That's great. Nothing goes to waste. Um, and, you know, that's... I do most of my writing based off what I think will be cool at the time, and then I make it fit in the story. Because that, to me, is one of the big allures of fantasy, is just doing whatever the hell you want. So... 
Gotcha. Uh, our next question comes from Michael, and we kind of touched on this a little bit in the beginning of the interview, um, but you're you're definitely one of the younger, notable authors kind of in the genre right now, and you started very young. Do you feel like that uh, made you feel pressured to kind of rise to the expectations of your older contemporaries, or did it just seem like more natural? Um, well, you know, I don't like bringing up my mom, but basically there's no greater pressure than having that hanging over you. So it didn't bother me as much. You know, I, but like I said, every author compares themselves to every other author, even though we shouldn't. Sure. Uh, and, you know, it, I, got, I got some lip for being younger. But then uh, Scott Lynch pointed out to me, like, this is a genre where you can be 40 and still considered one of the very youngest writers. And, you know, we're, everyone's getting younger and younger all the time. I met uh, Brian McClellan, who is 27 now, hmm. and published with his own trilogy. And I had my first old man moment. <laughs> I have more of did that. Did that feel good to you? Was that like, yeah. yes, like finally? It I felt have... good because I knew at that moment I could just sit there and lecture him and there was nothing he could do. <laughs> You're like, finally, I'm on that side of the table. Finally, yeah, no, I could just finally say now, let me tell you. And, <laughs> back yeah. in my day. Back in my day, you know, like two years ago. <laughs> I just totally like back in my day to you at the beginning of the show, and, and I'm See? two years older than you. It's satisfying, isn't it? It is. You need to, you need to have that feeling sometimes. You've got you to own it sometimes. To be the elder. Yeah. Trust me, kids, you get over it. Uh, you get old. <laughs> nice. Michael actually has another question here. He wants to know what role you think giant spiders play in the genre of epic fantasy and why you think that is. They do seem to be a pretty standard beast. Because spiders are scary, and they are not just scary, they are completely weird to us. Like, a wolf, which is also a standard fantasy trope, looks vaguely like something we have seen before. Uh, you know, dogs that we see every day. But uh, spiders... Most bugs are just horrifyingly weird. Uh, I have a new book coming out, City Stained Red, with Orbit next year, and uh, it takes place in a city whose entire economy is driven by giant spiders that weave silk. Because I was out at a, uh, I was out at a uh, exhibit on silk making with my sister, uh -huh. and I learned it came from worms. I'm like, well, that's boring. We can do something better. Nice. So, giant spiders. Uh, but I think, I think fa in fantasy we are sort of drawn to weird creatures, and spiders are about as weird as it freaking gets. They are weird things that we see every day. And they always provoke a visceral response, even though you right. see them every day, right? That's right. that's kind of the weirdness of them, right there. That um, them? go ahead. Sorry. Oh, sorry. You see them every day, but uh, not so often that they become yeah you know, boring. Right. So, um, so what, what was the name of that new title? Uh, the city stained red. And so, is that is that um, more in the realm of, of urban fantasy, or is that wh wh how would you categorize that? Uh, that is epic fantasy in an urban environment. It takes place exclusively in one city, but uh, this city is like a sprawling metropolis. It has all sorts of different districts. It has the uh, the wealthy part of town where all the people who own the giant spiders live. And where the spiders have their own servants who take them on walks and wow. beat anyone who <laughs> touches them. And are they um, are they smart? Like, can they can they communicate? No, they are they're like cows. They are 
they're docile and they have sort of they have figured they've got a pretty good life where they are, so they don't make too much trouble. But they are allowed free reign of the city, and uh, they're you know it's a crime to touch one if you're of a lesser caste. Uh, and you know on the other side of town there is the place where there's the old city where the seawall broke and it's now half drowned, and that's where the poor people live and die. It sounds vaguely like a slightly, perhaps, and correct me if I'm wrong, less dystopian version of um, Perdido Street Station. A little, yeah. Like uh, I, I definitely wanted to get into that uh, realm of weirdness, and no one does weird better than China Mayo, who is himself extremely weird. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty pumped about this. Gotcha. Our next question comes from June, who wants to know, uh, you've been very vocal about your love of epic fantasy. Does technology have a place in the world you create, um, or are the main tools slash weapons strictly magical or muscle-driven? I guess you kind of touched about on, on it in our previous question, because it sounds like there is more of a technology aspect to that upcoming story. Uh, sort of. There's indoor plumbing, which is new to this series. Uh-huh. But which probably made a huge difference back in the day. But I don't. I think epic fantasy is more, you know, a, an overt uh, feeling or tone rather than a strict set of tools. And, you know, right now Brian McClellan, Django Wexler are all pioneering flintlock fantasy, which is still magical, but it has powder rifles and gunpowder and all these crazy stuff. I think eventually you could go as far as you wanted, and eventually it would come uh, full circle and become a space opera. But I, w I would say, you know, you could do an epic fantasy in, like, a World War One post-industrial era setting, because, you know, urban fantasy, you could do an urban fantasy in with swords and sorcery, because urban fantasy is all about tone, and so is epic fantasy. It's all about the individual versus this vast world that we're all in. So yeah. I don't think it's constrained to yeah. just muscle. Well, you got you got something like Anne McCaffrey there where you've kind of gone full circle through space opera back to epic fantasy again, you know. It is by, a, it is a pretty incestuous genre. Yeah, it's it, it's it's all on a continuum somewhere. Yeah, which keeps it interesting, I think anyway. I think so, yeah. Well, we're always going in and out. Paul, uh, we have a few questions, and Paul's got the first one about your characters. Uh, Paul says, fantasy characters, from what I can tell, rarely give thought to how they're going to spend their autumn or winter years. Assuming they live long enough, where do Lenk and his troops see themselves 30 years down the road? Uh, mostly having nothing to do with each other. Uh, one of the big appeals of these characters was that uh, they are all fundamentally they all have severe emotional trauma they sort of clung together because no one else would have them you know in their ideal world they would probably be off doing their own separate things probably not killing for money anymore because I imagine it gets quite tiresome uh, but probably they'd all be dead is a this is a difficult line of work. Yeah. It sounds like it sounds pretty gritty. Uh, who do you consider kind of your contemporaries in in the genre that you work in? Uh, you know, I had I had a lot of influence by Joe Abercrombie because when I was starting to hammer this out, I was worried that this was not going to work 
and then the first law comes out and it blows my mind. Mm -hmm. I'm like, all right, this this will work. And you know, I devoured his books pretty rapidly after that. Uh, as late, I've become sort of less enchanted with grim dark as a genre. Though I still don't think Abercrombie is grim dark, despite how much he claims to be. Despite yeah. his Twitter handle, his Twitter grim dark. Really, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that I, I still I don't I don't think he's grim dark at all. But I do think there is a lot of grim dark, and I've kind of become a little bored with it by now. So that's that's interesting that you say that because I feel like a lot of people do kind of associate Joe Abercrombie, Pat Rothfuss, George R. R. Martin as being kind of in that gritty epic fantasy genre realm. Um, so if if Joe Abercrombie is not grimdark, even you know based on his own definition, what what do you consider grimdark? Who do you think is the Lord of Grimdark? Uh, grimdark, in my opinion, is not an abundance of conflict, but an absence of conflict. Grimdark is gritty for the sake of being gritty. The world is crap because, of course, the world is crap, because this is gritty. Uh, Abercrombie, his grittiness all had a point, and I think a lot of people missed that point. I thought Abercrombie's books were not necessarily about how terrible the world is, but how terribly hard it was to be human, and how easy it was to slip out of that. Uh, you know... Mark Lawrence, who's hmm. making waves all over the place, he's amazingly skilled. I have nothing but respect for him, but his style is just not for me. It, it seems like wildly, like almost to the point where it's all, it's almost a little cartoonish. And, you know, I've, I've mentioned this to him before, so I feel okay saying it now. But... Uh, you know, we, I see an influx of authors who sort of remind me of a young teenager trying to impress me with how edgy they are. And I'm a gamer. I've played... I'm totally desensitized, so I don't care anymore. <laughs> well, I think video games sort of show that that happens in all genres, right? You know, video games used to be very tame, you know, except for a, a little bit of shooting, maybe. And as as they progressed and people pushed the envelope a little more, they try new things until we get some really, like, out there Grand Theft Auto and more type of video games. So do you think that's just what's happening? Is the, the genre is getting taken to its extremes? I, you know, I think that is natural. I think we are currently swinging back and forth because the grimdark movement became a response to the overly sanitized uh, white hats, black hats, all orcs are evil, all elves are pretty and good. Uh, we wanted to show different moral spectrums. And, you know, I think Abercrombie did that really well. George R. R. Martin, of course, was sort of the king of that and showed all different kinds of moral spectrums. Uh, but, you know, I kind of think we've gone too far the other way where it's just everyone is shit. Oh, sorry, excuse me. Kids. That was a bad word. Sounds word. Yeah. Uh, everyone's different uh, degrees of a jerk. And we don't seem to be challenged. You know, of a poop head. Of a poop head. <laughs> of a poop head. Yeah. A lot of I want to see that in a George R. R. Martin book. <laughs> Tyrion's being a little poop head. Um, this actually kind of ties in very well to a question we got from our uh, viewing audience here live on the show. Uh, Gord McLeod wants to know, uh, do you ever get genre fatigue? Uh, do you find yourself tempted to work in other genres? Yeah. 
Yeah, all the time. Uh, but more than I am fatigued, I am very lazy. And I don't feel like doing a lot of research for historical fiction mm-hmm. or anything. I, you know, but I, the beauty of this genre is it's very vast and wild. You know, I'm, I'm kind of fatigued on Grimdark, but I'm, you know, one of the reasons I'm enjoying The Witcher is because I am sort of rediscovering my love of straight up energetic adventure fantasy. And, you know, this is one of the reasons why uh, Scott Lynch, his new book, sort of made me jump up and down with joy because he has a very energetic, fun prose that I have been sorely missing. Uh, so, you know, I do get fatigued, but I I sort of uh, feel that there's a enough of a vastness in this genre that I can be satisfied while still remaining in it. Gotcha. And then we also have a question from Jen. Um, Jen says, uh, well, she has a comment first. She says, I feel like your books rely more heavily on the characters, their personalities, and their interactions than than the world that they actually move through. Uh, For me, this is my favorite kind of novel. If I'm engaged by the personalities, I'll happily follow them through anything because I enjoy spending time with them. Was this a decision you made consciously to focus less on the world building and and more on the character development, or is this just where your strengths lie? Uh, Both. Like I said, I'm very lazy, so I didn't feel like fleshing out this world too much. But I'm sorry, I cannot, I cannot abide by the fact like someone who has written a trilogy and is working on another trilogy is in any way lazy. Like this oh, just doesn't. You can't procrastinate that much. I'm, I'm pretty good at it. <laughs> I, 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 I a trilogy in what? In what? Four years. That's that's yeah, I mean, pretty good. That's pretty there good. There are people out there cranking out books every day. It seems like. People, I, I have to like log off Twitter when people post their word count metrics because I start having <laughs> imposter syndrome. But there's probably more people that don't. So you're True. still, you you're still way up there, there All right. in, well, in the ranking. Okay. But anyway, I'm sorry to derail your answer. Continue, please. Oh, no, um, it's great. Uh, you know, my strengths do lie there because I'm very interested in how people work. You know, that interests me much more than, you know, the impact of the cotton economy on my imaginary world. I mean, that's that's interesting, but only insofar as how it makes people work. And, you know, in the new book, uh, I do talk more about the economy, but only because I'm interested in how that sort of creates power dynamics and how those power dynamics affect people. Uh, but the Aeon's Gate series was basically me, was an in-depth character study on six severely damaged people that I just sort of did because that interests me. Stephanie has a uh, question about future work. Uh, she says, I loved Wish for a Gun. Do you have any plans on writing other short fiction that is independent of the Aeon's Gate universe? I love this universe, but it's also very interesting to see you write something different. And I guess we kind of answered that with the spiders. Right. Um, I have a short story out with uh, George R. R. Martin's anthology, Dangerous Women, but that is in the Aeon's Gate University. Uh, universe, pardon um, Anything from Jurassic Publishing will you? Those are those are those are the prequels at the uh, Aeon's Gate University. University when they yeah. all go to right, class. they all they all meet the, in university the and they want to be a, right. they learn how to be awful people. Right, exactly. But I'd like that. That's what I learned in college. Uh, anything from Jurassic Publishing, uh, which I get, you know, Jared uh, Shuren, who runs it, is a very good friend of mine. He asked me, you know, he asked me to participate a lot, and I'm always happy to do it. But anything from that will be will usually be independent. 
And I do like short fiction because it really gives me a chance to go nuts. You know, in a confined space. Right, and it's with safeties on, sort of. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah nice. And now you met you met George R. R. Martin at, at a reading in Santa Fe, is that correct? I did. I took a selfie with him. Did you? Him. How was that? Uh, he didn't stand up for it, so it looked... We, we pioneered this thing called the stealthy, where you trick someone into having a selfie, <laughs> usually by sneaking up behind them and swinging your phone around to take a, a selfie of them before they can react. Before they can stop. Right. But in this case, George was sitting down, so I positioned myself in front of him and then snapped a selfie. Oh, nice. Yeah, I like him a lot. I've met him several times. He's a very nice guy. We'll have to, that... we'll have to put that in the, in the, in the blog post. For this uh, episode. A stealthy or a stealthy? A stealthy, you know, like stealth. A stealthy. Mm-hmm. Okay. You, you could go either way. Yeah, I think I like stealthy because it's harder stealthy. to say and it makes it funnier. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now another Mark, another Mark wants to know. Um, I want to hear more about beating people up with sharks. Hmm. Uh, yeah. In the third book, Skybound Sea, uh, it takes place on an island where sea and sky have forgotten they were ever apart. So fish sort of swim through the air, and there's coral reefs growing on it. And uh, one of my characters, Gareth, seizes a shark and beats someone to death with it. Because, why not? Because shark. Because shark. I think that's, you know, that was an instance of, that's cool, how can I make this work? And... Yeah, I mean... Did you see the Doctor Who episode where they had sharks swimming through the air? I did not. I did not. I'm oh, that's a good one. Hubianism. But, uh, yeah. What else are you going to use a shark for? Yeah, I agree. <laughs> now, I read an interview where uh, you line out how you would attack and defeat most of your competing epic fantasy authors, except for Pat Rothfuss and N.K. Jameson who you, you couldn't uh, mount a defense for at the time of that interview. Have you figured out how to defeat them yet? Uh, Pat, yes. Uh, N.K. Jemison, no. I just, I, I don't have her instincts. I would, I don't, I don't, our power levels are too different. Uh, Patrick is just such a really nice guy that I imagine I could probably defeat him by saying something relatively shocking that he just didn't believe, and that would send him into a deep despair from which he would not emerge. Hmm. So once I, once I discover that. Gotcha. But uh, the trick with him is just steer, steer clear of the beard. You don't know what he's got in there. Right. <laughs> could, be, could be anything. Weapons, snacks I, for later, I think, small animals. I think it's just, a, uh, it's just a five-inch clone of himself. <laughs> that is living in there that he sends out to do his business. Gotcha. I like I like that Tom beard beard of holding. That's funny. Beard of holding. Beard thank of you. holding. <laughs> all right. Well, Sam, thank you so much for being on the show. Where can people follow all of your work and musings online? Uh, I'm at samsykes.com. On Twitter, I'm at samsykesswears and those are where I'm usually found saying and you know, we actually had a, a swear count. Um, Jog Feud over on Twitter said that uh, he's counted out of six, 61,887 tweets, only 28 included the F word. Oh. So 
You're not really swearing as much as I would imagine based on your Twitter handle. Yes, I... Wait, he counted all of them? Yeah, he, counted, Apparently. he counted all of them. That's peculiar. Welcome to the internet. I mean, I... The, the reason for that is that I use a lot of made-up swears. Mm. So I could be swearing right now, and you'd never know. Filthy, filthy mouth on this one. Yeah. Terrifying. <laughs> Old lady stuttering. Nice. Well, thank you again for being on the show. It was a blast. Thank you. Yeah, and thank everyone, you so everyone out there. Sam Sykes, S-Y-K-E-S. If you're just listening to the audio, that's how you spell Absolutely. And uh, if you guys want to follow us, we are at Sword and Laser on Twitter. Our website is swordandlaser.com. All of our discussions happen over on goodreads.com. And, of course, we are also on the Boing Boing Podcast Network. Um, if you want to see what other cool stuff they have, head over to boingboing.net slash category slash podcasts. And I definitely recommend you guys check out the Apps for Kids show. Um, it's a podcast with uh, M- Mark Fraunfelder. And recently they took a look at the uh, Snap Together robot kit for kids called Pascal. Um, so check that out over at the podcast section on Boing Boing and we will see you guys next time. Bye everybody. Bye. Bye. about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there.